Welcome to Sojourner Truth. Thank you so much for staying with us. This is your host, Margaret Prescott. Today on Sojourner Truth, we revisit a segment from a weekly roundtable where our panelists, Jackie Goldberg, Tom Hayden, and Dr. Gerald Horn, shared what inspired and continues to inspire them in their activism, also in their work in public service and academia, and a selection from the teaching from Mali to Congo, what the mainstream media won't tell us about Africa with Dr. Gerald Horn. And we also hear a recent interview with The Nation magazine's sports writer, Dave Zurin, on the scandal surrounding race and homophobia in basketball and other sports, in particular on the recent scandal involving Rutgers University basketball coach Mike Rice. We live in a global world. We're all interrelated. So on Sojourner Truth, we work to bring directly to you news and views on local, national, and international policies and stories that affect us all. And we draw out how those of us most impacted women, communities of color, and other communities are responding. We also discuss the interrelationship between art and politics. Now for our news headlines. For Pacifica Radio, I'm Eileen Alfandiri. President Obama had tough talk on sexual assault in the military, following news that the Air Force Lieutenant Colonel who leads the service's sexual assault prevention unit was charged with sexual battery over the weekend. Uh, Sexual assault is an outrage. Uh, It is a crime. Uh, That's true for society at large, and if it's happening uh, inside our military, then uh, whoever carries it out uh, is betraying uh, the uniform that they're wearing. A new Pentagon study shows an estimated 26,000 sexual assaults took place in the military last year. The vast majority were not reported. New York Democratic Senator Kirsten Gillibrand said the current system for investigating and prosecuting military sexual assault isn't working. If the man in charge for the Air Force in preventing sexual assault is being alleged to have committed a sexual assault this weekend... Obviously, there's a failing in training and understanding of what sexual assault is and how corrosive and damaging it is to good order and discipline. Members of Congress are putting together legislation to essentially strip military officers of the authority to overturn convictions for serious offenses such as sexual assault. Separate legislation would take the reporting of assault out of the chain of command and place it in a separate office staffed by experts in investigating and prosecuting such crimes. Cleveland's police chief says the three women held captive in a house for nearly a decade were restrained with ropes and chains and allowed out into the backyard occasionally. The police chief disputed claims by neighbors that officers had been called to the house before for suspicious circumstances. He said the three brothers arrested in the case are talking but wouldn't say if they have confessed. He said a charging decision could come later in the day. The death toll in the Bangladesh garment industry building collapse has topped 800. No clear indication of how many bodies remain trapped in the debris. Following protests, authorities also began paying out salaries and other benefits to survivors of the collapse. The workers have demanded at least four months' salary. Secretary of State John Kerry says he and Russian officials have agreed to seek new peace talks to end Syria's bloody civil war. No details on where or precisely when such a conference could take place. Kerry said the U.S. and Russia share certain goals. Stability in the region, uh, not having extremists, uh, creating problems throughout the region and elsewhere. 
Kerry was visiting Moscow after Israel bombed targets near Damascus and as President Obama faces renewed calls to arm Syrian rebels. In Syria, there's a massive internet blackout today. No immediate announcement if the government pulled the plug. Delaware has become the 11th state to legalize same-sex marriage. The state Senate approved the bill by a vote of 12 to 9. Governor Jack Markell immediately signed it into law. People had been uh, working on this. People had been hoping for this day for decades. The bill was done. Uh, a lot of the advocates were here. We wanted to take this moment, a special moment, uh, to celebrate and sign it into law. During the debate, State Senator Karen Peterson came out publicly for the first time and spoke about her and her partner's 24-year relationship. Afterwards, Peterson spoke to reporters about her decision to come out. You know, you are who you are. You are what God made you. You know, I'm in my 60s now. I, you know, I, I'm to a point in my life where, you know, if you like it, fine. If you don't, that's fine, too. I just, I am who I am. Delaware is the second state in less than a week to extend marriage rights to same-sex couples. On Friday, Rhode Island's governor signed similar legislation. Mississippi's highest court stayed the execution of a man scheduled to die last night for the 1992 murder of two college students after federal authorities said last week they overstated the strength of a piece of evidence during the trial. 44-year-old Willie Jerome Manning was scheduled to be put to death by lethal injection, but won a last-minute reprieve from the Mississippi Supreme Court. The FBI and U.S. Department of Justice officials said in letters last week to the state that an FBI examiner had overstated conclusions about a hair found in Miller's car by suggesting it came from an African-American. Manning is black. The two victims were white. The hair sample was the only physical evidence linking him to the crime scene. Death penalty opponent Benjamin Russell is with the group Mississippians Educating for Justice. The actual order that came from the Supreme Court uh, actually does not give us a time limit. Um, as uh, Willie's attorneys did say, um, generally it's going to be about 24 hours. That's what we're expecting. And um, we're not entirely sure what is going to ha what is going to take place immediately after. We are beginning to work on um, continuing to push for DNA evidence to be tested. Meanwhile, Texas prison officials executed a condemned inmate for the 2003 killing of a drug dealer. I'm Eileen Alfandari. You're listening to Sojourner Truth on Pacifica Radio. That was our news headlines, and we're now going to go to the segment very popular with our listeners uh, from our weekly roundtable panelists, Jackie Goldberg, Tom Hayden, and Dr. Gerald Horn, sharing what inspired them. We are now going to segue into, well, a little bit of a different uh, discussion because I'm going to be asking each of our panelists what inspired them as a young person, what uh, continues to inspire them now. And uh, let's start off that discussion with something that inspires me, and that is the Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King the night before he was assassinated. In I Memphis. got into Memphis, and some began to say the threats, or talk about the threats that were out, or what would happen to me from some of our sick white brothers. Well, I don't know what will happen now. We've got some difficult days ahead, but it really doesn't matter with me now because I've been to the mountaintop. I don't mind. 
Like anybody, I would like to live a long life. Longevity has its place. But I'm not concerned about that now. I just want to do God's will. And he's allowed me to go up to the mountain. And I've looked over. And I've seen the promised land. I may not get there with you. But I want you to know the night that we as a people will get to the promised land. So I'm happy tonight. I'm not worried about anything. I'm not fearing any man. Mine eyes have seen the glory of the coming of the Lord. I mean, Tom Hayden, you can't, at least I can't listen to that um, speech without practically your hair, uh, you know, standing on end there. I mean, after that, he was ill that night and he wept during that speech and he had to be helped to his seat. You said earlier that you knew uh, Dr. Martin Luther King and and Tom Hayden. We're happy to have you on because you've been through all of it, it seems, from the civil rights movement to the Chicago 8, the, the, the police riot that happened outside the Democratic National Convention to um, being an elected official to now being a, a peace activist. And I'm sure that young people are wondering what inspired you then and what drives you now, Tom Hayden? <clears throat> well, longevity has its place, as Dr. King just said. <laughs> yeah. I'm in my place. Uh, the uh, uh, I I was really bound to um, uh, be, I think, a, a nonconformist. Uh, I was caught. I was between the beat generation and the, the you know the dropouts on the one hand, and the uh, career you know the career path, which would have been to, to journalism, and I think that meant that I was. A, a, I was born to question or raised to question. I wasn't raised by left-wing parents. Uh, so, Gerald, there's there's hope there in your examination of the uh, white race. <laughs> the I think it came out of um, the nonconformity came out of uh, inherent curiosity, but also um, it, it, you know over it, most of all it was the times. There's no question there was. Um, uh, a movement born in the South among young people, um, uh, nearly all, but, but, but not only African-American. And uh, Dr. King um, reluctantly was drawn into the, um, the uh, leadership of the Montgomery bus boycott. And, and uh, we often forget that the 60s began in the 50s. And um, there was, so there was this context of... Uh, moral pressure, political pressure to take a stand and decide um, whether you were going to settle for the world that your parents had left you or whether you were going going to take risks. So in that sense, it was uh, was an act of will. um, uh, But uh, I, I don't think I would have gone down the path I did if it was not for these uh, movements. I met Dr. King. I interviewed him on a picket line here in Los Angeles in 1960, and um, 
I was just in between the beat generation and journalism, and we, we talked for a while, and I, I remember he had a, a deep effect on me even then, uh, before I'd become an activist, because uh, <clears throat> he was so uh, uh, nice, gentle, smart, uh, funny, um, uh, and, and I, I realized that he and the students that he was working with had discovered a purpose in life worth dying for. And I, that's what I was looking for. I, I, among my peers, there was no purpose worth dying for. There were, there were, there were people that were questioning whether life itself was worthwhile. I guess uh, because the uh, the Beat Generation was was uh, you know about uh, the the poem Howl is about uh, 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 Carl in Ginsburg and I mean Alan Ginsburg's friend in. The, an insane asylum, and the uh, one flew over the cuckoo's nest was about a rebellion among inmates in a mental institution. And Holden Caulfield, the the white hero of the uh, Catcher in the Rye, was in a mental institution. So it it didn't seem like there were many choices. I didn't want to be insane, um, but but there were no sane choices at the time until the movement came along and. I find today the same spirit in the um, the the dreamers, the uh, immigrant rights movement, uh, and the uh, LGBT movements. Yeah. So the the things that inspired you back then, and and one of these days, Tom, we're going to need to have you in and talk a bit more about your history, about the Port Huron statement that was so very important for the movement at the time that you were involved in and helping to draft. We don't have the time now to to go into you know detail of that, but it it really would be good you know to get that story sometime from you. And so the meeting of Dr. King, you were in the South, you had some contact with the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee, and you mentioned longevity. And earlier you questioned, well, what happened to the Occupy movement? So the whole thing of, of longevity and a purpose in life worth dying for, I found really significant in what you said, Tom. Thank you. All righty. Um, I mean, nobody wants to die. Um, people are not looking oh. forward to death. Um, Jackie Goldberg, it's interesting that uh, Native American people, a number of nations have a prayer and they end it with saying it's a good day to die. And uh, Elder told me once, it doesn't mean that you want to die that day, but it means that you live your life in a certain way. Right. Um, and Jackie Goldberg, again, very fortunate to have all three of you, actually. I mean, you came out of you are at UC Berkeley at the height of um, the free speech movement, I think, the, the, the beginnings of the anti, anti-war movement, um, the LGBT movement, uh, you know, being the first out elected official on, on city council and educator, uh, Jackie Goldberg, you bring quite a lot of experience. So what inspired you back then and what inspires you today? Well, I think the deepest memory that inspired me was watching uh, a governor of Alabama stand in front of a school and try to keep black children from going to that school. Mm. Uh, those are my, my earliest memories were, were at my uncle's house. We didn't have a TV, but my uncle did. And at his house, watching those things and my parents telling me that that was just wrong, that was just plain wrong. 
Um, I also like Tom. I didn't grow up in a in a progressive left wing house. Although the values of my parents, if they were translated into politics, which they weren't particularly, they voted. Uh, we listened to the uh, conventions on the uh, every year, when, every four years when we had the the political conventions. And I think my parents would have defined themselves as Adlai Stevenson Democrats. Uh, but uh, but basically, I didn't grow up with a very political background. But I did have political, quote, parents in that I joined in 1961, Women's Strike for Peace, uh, because I was worried about nuclear atmospheric testing and the effect that that would have on cow's milk and strontium-90 and also just the fact that we were downwind from a lot of those ranges in, in Nevada, um, and I joined them on their first march at City Hall on November 1st and, and met some women who became my political parents, uh, my political mothers, uh, um, uh, Mary Clark and, and, a, and a whole bunch of them. And they really took me in hand, and that really started my political education. Then I go to Berkeley, and I get both involved in civil rights and free speech movement, and I get arrested a few times. I think being arrested probably was the biggest uh, improvement in my understanding of the system uh, because I had really no idea um, how how uh, the system really worked. I, I knew from being a young person in Inglewood, which was virtually intentionally all white, still had white citizens' councils meeting at night in the public library, um, I knew... Uh, that that racism was alive and well in the United States in spite of whatever anybody might say to me. So I didn't have to learn about that, but everything else I had to learn about because I thought the country really worked as we were told in our in our government class. So I got when you get arrested and you find out how people are treated who get arrested for you know civil disobedience in this case so sitting in on the Sheraton Palace Hotel uh, around the fact that they wouldn't hire any non-white people uh, except where you couldn't see them, like in the kitchen. Um, and so uh, that that got me involved. And, of course, once you begin to get involved, uh, from there it, it was the free speech movement because the, uh, the Republicans, particularly uh, in, in the newspaper business, Bill Nolan tried to shut down our free speech, and that, of course, helped us realize how important it was to get rid of the McCarthy era, and really the free speech movement was basically an anti-McCarthy era view. I mean, I remember when when uh, Clark Kerr called us uh, that, that 49% of us were communists or communist sympathizers, and I was so afraid of being called a communist in those days, but I still the next day wore a button that said, I'm a part of that 49%, you know, because we knew we had to fight that. And, and, you know, really, basically, out of that came the feminist movement. So for me, it was a matter of once I became inspired by civil rights and the rights of people should be the same for everybody in America, uh, it really led me into understanding that there were a lot of other things going on. And it was, you know, you get involved then in the anti-draft. I became a draft counselor at the high school I was teaching at during the Vietnam War, you begin to see how the pieces fit together. And I think that's really the hardest part for most young people, is is that our educational system now is so much worse than it was when I was uh, uh, going through. 
and so much more expensive and so much harder to get into and so much harder just to get classes. And now when you come out of school, you don't believe that you can get a, necessarily will be able to get a job. I think part of the reason you don't see more activism today by young people is, is that they are not in an economy that I was in, which was an expanding economy, which meant more jobs for more people, which meant higher wages going, wages going up, economy expanding. That's a very different time to be an activist than when everything is being shut down, sequestered, taken apart, unnailed. You know, I, the, 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 the ruling classes of the world are just stealing everything from everybody. They are stealing everything and that's not nailed down. And now they're in the process of lifting up the nails and stealing what little is left. And I think that's a very harder time to be an activist. On the other hand, at some point it becomes absolutely necessary to be an activist. So I'm hoping that all those young people, and I meet them because I teach young people at UCLA, I'm I'm hoping that what we're going to begin to see is people realizing that they really haven't anything to lose uh, in taking risks because there aren't any jobs in the current economy. And if we don't change things dramatically soon... Uh, you know, the future will be very, very grim for most Americans. And I think that that is motivating some. The problem is is that they they don't feel like they have a way to win. And they I think that's what hurt Occupy America is, is that, okay, so now what do we do? How can you do, how can you sustain this forever? And, and, and a movement has to be sustainable. Right. And, and Dr. Gerald Horn, having you weigh in on what inspired you as a young person and, and what inspires you now, Dr. Gerald Horn. Well, Margaret, I come from a long line of Mississippi slaves. And Mississippi, of course, is probably the heavyweight champion in the United States in terms of white supremacy. And I grew up with my parents telling me stories about Mississippi. My parents, of course, grew up in Jim Crow, Mississippi. And I grew up in Jim Crow, St. Louis, Missouri. And I'll never forget these stories about Jim Crow, Mississippi. My parents telling me that uh, walking down the sidewalk, if there was some white person coming towards them, they had to get off the sidewalk and walk in the gutter and walk in the street and run the risk of being run over by a car. And then I had to to overcome similar kinds of hurdles in St. Louis, where there were restaurants and other enterprises that I could not enter because of apartheid-level regulations. And, and then my father was a, a teamster, which billed itself as the largest union in the capitalist world, but was being systematically looted by organized crime, which thereby uh, crippled his pension and then sent him into a, a kind of... Uh, economic depression by the time he was about to retire. And so it's difficult when, when you live through those kinds of experiences, obviously it, it, it leaves a mark. And then going away to college, I think the turning point was getting involved in the anti-apartheid movement. Because when you get involved in that movement, you begin to see that uh, what I was experiencing in the Midwest and what my parents had experienced in Mississippi was really part of a, a global trend, uh, part of a global pattern. And then once one begins to interrogate those global patterns, I think it brings you to deeper understanding and conclusions, which is one of the reasons why, if I had any advice to give to young people, it would be to get involved 
in those kinds of solidarity movements, the Congo Solidarity Movement, the Haitian Solidarity Movement, not only because when you speak of lifting up the least of these, you're basically speaking of lifting all of humanity, mm-hmm. but also because of the deeper understanding that it brings, not only of global patterns, but domestic patterns. This is Margaret Prescott, host of Sojourner Truth. And next up, a selection from the teaching from Mali to Congo, what the mainstream media won't tell us about Africa, with Dr. Gerald Horn. The event took place earlier this year. It's going to be difficult to cover this entire continent of dozens of nations, uh, history, past and present. So I'm going to speak in broad strokes. Let me also say that like the dog that didn't bark in the Sherlock Holmes story, what I'm not going to talk about is also important. And let let me illustrate what what I mean. I'm not going to be talking about Cameroon. I mention that because the United States from time to time puts the spotlight on countries whose leaders don't seem to observe term limits, so to speak. And then they raise a hue and cry, which is the prelude to invasion. I recall that this was being done with regard to Zimbabwe in 2008. And I talked to this uh, Pacifica host, not Margaret Prescott, of course, about her focus on Zimbabwe, which was so much in tune with what I was hearing in the mainstream. And I said, (laughs) well, I said that. that. And so I said, why don't you talk about uh, Cameroon, for example? Paul Bia's been in power for decades. I mean, he's a mass, gross human rights violator. Why don't you talk about Swaziland here, the last absolute monarchy on the African continent? I I really recommend the documentary film you can find on on Netflix, Without the King. Anybody see that about Swaziland? I mean, it's a horror show in in terms of misogyny, male supremacy, oppression. But I sort of understand why even a Pacifica host might have difficulty focusing on these nations, because if you focus on Libya, you focus on Zimbabwe, You don't have to do as much introductory material because the mainstream press has laid down a blanket propaganda and so people feel familiar with it. Whereas if you talk about Swaziland or talk about Cameroon, well then you have to do so much explaining as to why this is the focus, et cetera. So I'm not talking about those countries either. I'm not talking about Western Sahara, the last colony on the African continent. I'm not talking about Madagascar. Uh, Here, some of you from Los Angeles might be familiar with Andy Rossoff. Uh, who was of Madagascar descent, ain't misbehaving, worked with, with uh, Fats Waller, et cetera. As early as the 1690s, you had uh, U.S. slave traders from New York who were grabbing Africans in Madagascar and taking them uh, to North America. I'm not talking about Sudan, for example, which until quite recently 
was the largest country by territory on the African continent, but as you know, has suffered a split. Now there are two nations occupying that soil. Whatever the merits of that split might have been, it's undeniable that the United States and Israel had a lot to do with the split in Sudan, but I'm not going to be talking about that. But what I will be dealing with is a number of broad questions. And let me, in terms of my introductory remarks, lay down a number of themes. One is that the reason why Africa attracts so much attention is because of fragile political systems debilitated by colonialism combined with immense mineral wealth. I mean, for example, Nigeria, West Africa, oil, Angola, oil, Equatorial Guinea, oil, natural gas, which we're going to be spending some time talking about shortly, natural gas, Algeria, you recall the hostage crisis at the natural gas plant in Algeria just a few weeks ago? Natural gas, very important because it, it's going to tie into a number of our environmental concerns. Uranium in Niger, critical with regard to Mali, which is on the marquee of our discussion tonight. Diamonds, not only in terms of Namibia uh, here, but also in terms of Zimbabwe as well, gold in South Africa. So you have all of this immense mineral wealth and natural resources on a continent that has been debilitated and weakened by the slave trade and colonialism, which makes it a ripe target for the North Atlantic countries. Secondly, how can the North Atlantic countries, principally the United States of America, lay claim to these resources that obviously don't belong to them, and get away with it. For the longest time, part of the ideological rationale for this uh, thievery was uh, anti-communism. That is to say that those who were seeking to reclaim the wealth on behalf of the people were communists and therefore gross violators of human rights, therefore did not merit the high-minded claim of supposedly reclaiming the resources for the people. In the first place, perhaps, this might lead to a discussion of Patrice Lumumba in the Congo, a nation that is larger than the United States east of the Mississippi River, however, having few bridges and highways, etc., not least because of the rapacious colonialism imposed on the Congo by the Belgians uh, some decades ago. Patrice Lumumba, the first leader of independent Congo, you may know was murdered with U.S. Central Intelligence Agency complicity in January 1961 in the transition from the Eisenhower to the Kennedy administration. Or take Nelson Mandela in South Africa. Uh, Nelson Mandela is seen as a secular saint today, someone who is admired across the ideological spectrum, but my gray hairs betray an age when I recall when Nelson Mandela was in prison and not only was Dick Cheney applauding the fact that he was jailed, Dick Cheney of course being the former US pres vice president, but also I'm afraid some organizations, civil rights organizations who I will not name were very <laughs> Okay, all right, all right. Fair enough. 
there's a feisty crowd. No problem. No problem. Well, look, I, you know, I used to live in New York, and I used to do a lot of anti-apartheid work in New York, and it was very difficult to get the NAACP to sign on to our marches be, because it was because, you know, Washington had laid down this propaganda line that Nelson Mandela was a communist, and uh, they were afraid to associate with communists, and so therefore they were afraid to associate with Nelson Mandela. Although I do recall, I was in Los Angeles in 1990 when Nelson Mandela came to the Coliseum, and it was filled, and uh, a number of these people who had shunned him were now in the front row, but fair enough. <laughs> That's the way it goes. You know, better late than never. <laughs> Kwame Nkrumah of independent Ghana uh, coming to power in 1957 before being overthrown in 1966, you may recall, on a peace mission to Southeast Asia. Overthrown once again, not only with the complicity of the US CIA, but recall that the US ambassador at the time in Accra, Ghana was Franklin Williams, a black American, former NAACP uh, leading official. Uh, Angola, coming to independence in 1975 from Portuguese colonialism. Uh, perhaps unbeknownst to you, many of you in this room are of Angolan descent because there's a long relationship between the United States and Angola, particularly during the battle days of the slave trade. And I recall when the still ruling party, MPLA, came to power, 1975-1976, there was an attempt to destabilize the regime by Washington, funding contra elements, as they were called. The Angolans thought that it would be a good idea to share the wealth. There's immense, immense wealth in Angola, uh, oil in particular. It's a major oil supplier to the United States. But basically, the United States and its allies says that you cannot build socialism. It's illegitimate. Okay, so fine. Now, perhaps the richest woman of African descent in the world, perhaps even richer than Oprah, is Isabel dos Santos, who is the daughter of the leader of the MPLA. In other words, the MPLA said, okay, fine, we can't build socialism, we'll build capitalism, and we'll make my daughter, you know, the richest woman, uh, African woman in the world. Uh, the same thing happened in Free Limo, Mozambique. Uh, once again, this nation is Southeast Africa. A number of uh, African Americans are of Mozambican descent because in the latter stages of the slave trade, you had US slavers going into Mozambique, kidnapping people and dragging them across the Atlantic after coming to independence in the mid-1970s. They too are trying to redistribute the wealth from top to bottom and Washington and LS say, no, you can't do that. So fine, there was a war that takes place that forces them away from their path. The major point that you need to keep in mind when we look at Africa today is to recognize that for decades that the United States and its allies had said that it's illegitimate to redistribute the wealth. <laughs> it's illegitimate for you to reclaim your own resources because you're dirty thieving communists and uh, therefore you should not do this. Now, of course, you have to make certain kinds of distinctions. I mean, for example, I mean, the Catholic Church, bless its soul, is going through a leadership transition. We all know the scandals about the Catholic Church, you know, uh, misogyny, child abuse, implicated in the slave trade, etc. But we also know that anti-Catholicism is an illegitimate ideology. And of course, it was once very prevalent in the United States of America. There used to be a political party 
called the Know Nothing Party in the 1850s. That's K-N-O-W, Know Nothing Party. That was a precursor to the Ku Klux Klan, but focused on Catholics and was so organized and so sophisticated that it used to win elections on write-ins without running candidates. It would be, for example, in your primary in LA with Wendy Gruel and Jan Perry, Eric Gorsetti, et cetera, that suddenly Daydon Kamathi wins <laughs> on a write-in because his forces are so well organized that they troop to the polls and write in his name. That was a know-nothing party. It was a very strong party. So I say that to say that you know, you can, we can discuss <laughs> the merits and demerits of socialism, but that does not legitimate anti-communism as a philosophy which has been used for very negative uh, purposes. Now, I'm also going to be focusing on the, on the United States of America, even though the major colonial powers on the African continent have been France, Britain, Portugal, etc. Now, <laughs> Mitt Romney accused uh, Barack Obama of doing an apology tour, apologizing for the United States. And I feel like I've been doing an apology tour because when I begin to talk about the United States, it, it, it makes me rather sad about the roles that U.S. activists and U.S. scholars in particular have played in not helping to create a narrative that can explain the way forward and can shed light on how we got into so much difficulty. And for example, U.S. historians have not stressed sufficiently that when the United States was founded, that most Africans opposed it because as they saw it, the purpose of establishing the United States was to circumvent slavery's abolition that was emanating from London, the then colonial power. They looked at the formation of the United States the way that Africans in Zimbabwe, then Rhodesia, looked at the white colonists in 1965 who tried to declare independence to circumvent decolonization. And as it turns out, they had a point because after the formation of the United States of America, the slave trade skyrocketed. It reached a height that it had never reached before, mostly captained by U.S. nationals. One of the major reasons why you have more Africans living in Brazil than any country outside of Nigeria is because of U.S. nationals. I talk about this in my book, The Deepest South, the United States, Brazil, and the African Slave Trade. I have a book coming out uh, hopefully next year called Exporting Slavery and Jim Crow, the United States and Cuba and the Road to Revolution, where I point out that one of the reasons you have so many Africans in Cuba is precisely because of U.S. nationals, even more so than Spanish nationals, and Spanish being the, Spain being the colonial master. In fact, one of the few times when the United States prosecutes and indeed executes a slave trader takes place under the Lincoln administration in 1862 when a chap from Maine is smuggling hundreds of Congolese into Cuba and is detained by the U.S. authorities in the United States because it's in a death match with the so-called Confederate States of America who had seceded on the basis of slavery, decide to prosecute him and execute him. I should also mention that in Zanzibar, which is off the coast of Southeast Africa, part of Tanzania now, even before the Atlantic slave trade, it was a major locus of the slave trade heading east, which in some ways was larger than the Atlantic slave trade, and in some ways lasted longer, 
But by the 1850s, U.S. nationals were the major economic force in Zanzibar, which was like the, the Kmart of the slave trade. And so, in other words, you could get Africans of various varieties there. At this point, let me recall that in 1970, Willie Brandt, the then West German leader, he went to Warsaw, Poland. And he went up to a monument to mark the Warsaw Ghetto Uprising during World War II in the 1940s. And he was so overcome with grief at what the German people, or the German elite, <laughs> had done to the Polish people that he spontaneously fell on his knees and asked for forgiveness. So that's what I do right now on behalf of U.S. scholars. No, really, the U.S. left. On behalf of the U.S. left, U.S. scholars, black scholars, black radical scholars, I, I ask for your forgiveness because we haven't done our job. Uh, we haven't uh, provided a, a, a good explanation to explain how we got into this mess and how we're going to get out of this mess. And so let me apologize on behalf of all the groups that I purport to represent. So this is a prelude to a few points, first of all, about Mali, which, as you know, is in the headlines. Now, how do you explain that Africans in the streets of Mali who were cheering an intervention by French colonial forces who were seeking to drag the nation back to the 19th century. That is because, like many people, and people in the United States are well aware of this kind of difficult choice, sometimes life presents you with difficult choices. They were cheering these French because the option were these conservative religious radicals who wanted to drag them back to the 12th century. <laughs> so they chose to opt for the 19th and not the 12th century, which actually is rational. But since media is one of our emphases here, I should mention that on Talk of the Nation, the NPR uh, program just a few days ago, uh, there was a program and they were just simply applauding the fact that there was this French intervention without stepping back and trying to understand how we got to this point where we had to make a decision between the 19th century versus the 12th century. And hopefully one of the things I'm going to try to do is to shed light on how we got to such a difficult position. Some of you may, of course, know about Kwame Nkrumah of Ghana and Patrice Lumumba of Congo, and this wave of progressive African leaders, some of whom I've made reference to, well, you should add to that pantheon Modibo Keita of Mali, uh, who was overthrown with US, French, and NATO complicity in the 1960s, which basically helps to lay the groundwork for the rise of conservative religious radicalism. One of the major themes of world history that your grandchildren will be writing about assuming that climate change does not overtake us all, <laughs> is this trend of how the attack on the left forces, like Keita or like Nkrumah, basically prepares the battlefield and lays the groundwork for the rise of these various kinds of conservatism, or in Mali's case, this conservative religious radicalism. 
And matter of fact, you could say the same thing about the United States of America. We are now going to take a station break. And coming up, The Nation magazine sports writer, Dave Zurin. This is Danny Glover. You're listening to Sojourner Truth with my friend Margaret Prescott, Tuesday through Friday, 7 to 8 a.m., right here on Pacifica Radio, KPFK, radio powered by the people. You are listening to Sojourner Truth with your host, Margaret Prescott. If you've missed any part of this hour, you can go to our website at sotrueradio.org or go to kpfk.org. Scroll down to archives, click on Sojourner Truth. You'll be able to hear the show in its entirety. You can download and subscribe for a free podcast. I recently spoke with Dave Zurin with The Nation magazine in particular, on the recent scandal involving Rutgers University basketball coach Mike Rice, we talked about issues surrounding race and homophobia in basketball and other sports. The cloistered world of college athletics under scrutiny again after the firing of Rutgers head basketball coach Mike Rice. Last Wednesday, Rice was fired after ESPN released video of the coach physically and verbally abusing his players with homophobic and sexist slurs. The school's response has come under fire after it was revealed that Rutgers officials knew of Rice's behavior since at least November 26th. The incident is another in a long line of abuse scandals that have rocked the sports world at the collegiate and professional levels. Last October, former Penn State assistant football coach was sentenced to a minimum of 30 years after being found guilty of 45 counts of child abuse. That story brought to light a cover-up dating back to at least 2002 and forced the resignation and firing of some of Penn State's most senior administrators, including the famed coach Joe Paterno. Meanwhile, racist displays by fans continue to plague the world of soccer, especially in Europe. AC Milan player made headlines when he left the field mid-game protesting racist chants directed at black players during a game in Italy earlier this year. I'd like to welcome to Sojourner Truth, Dave Zurin. Dave, thank you so very much for joining us. Uh, Great to be here. Thanks for having me. Dave, sports correspondent for The Nation magazine and author of Game Over, how politics has turned the sports world upside down and he's a frequent guest on msnbc espn democracy now and he also hosts his own weekly serious xm show edge of sports radio and his other books include what's my name fool a people's history of sports in the united states and bad sports how owners are ruining the games we love so getting back to this um code of silence i mean when you look at the the footage uh, which i did of uh, you know what this coach was up to with these rutgers players it's pretty shocking that that kind of thing went on that the college president 
incident, it was brought to his attention and he preferred not to look at the video, but not looking at the video is no excuse. As far as I'm concerned, this guy should be out of there. Oh, Robert Barchi, uh, the president of Rutgers. I mean, already the athletic director uh, resigned, although he would have been fired if he didn't resign. And it reflects the cloistered world because it's a videotape that the athletic director saw and clearly thought there wasn't a problem with. It was a videotape that the president, depending on who you believe, either chose not to see it or saw it and didn't think it was a big deal or thought that there was a greater imperative and that was protecting the program from scandal. And here's where you get to that connective tissue between this and something like Penn State. Because I bet some listeners might have heard your introduction and thought, well, wait a minute, one is about serial child rape, the other is about a coach uh, yelling slurs. Isn't that a huge difference? Well, there really is a, a lot of connectivity between there, and it's the connectivity of a world of big-time athletics, which is somehow seen as morally apart, morally exempt, politically apart, politically exempt from the life on the campus. I mean, and that's the thing that I think should at least give us some hope in this story is that as soon as the videotape uh, saw the light of day, most people recoiled. I mean, from LeBron James, the basketball star, to New Jersey Governor Chris Christie. I mean, people were repulsed by what they saw. Even Rutgers coach Mike Rice was repulsed. I mean, I actually take his sadness that as as press conference that took place outside his own home about how his family was embarrassed about his kids were embarrassed i take him at his word because i think these guys so often live in their own bubble that as soon as you shine a little light on it it's almost like they have a moment of clarity about how abominate about how uh, abominational their behavior is one wonders, and, and, and looking at that um, video, I really wondered, is this a one-off? Um, and will we ever know how widespread this kind of behavior is? I mean, you know, and and also with um, the, the Penn State scandal, I mean, hopefully that is a one-off. That's just the horror of those children being abused. But just the fact that so many people keep their mouths shut. Yeah, I mean, it, it's it's certainly not a one-off. I mean, one of the players, several players, by the way, I should say this, it's very illustrative who's defending Coach Rice. It's basically yeah. Fox News and some former players, yeah. which to me says so much about the psychology of bullying, because who, who defends these kinds of comments and this kind of attitude, it's in this kind of homophobic and sexist garbage. Well, it's, it's the bulliers. I mean, it's people who have a stake in those kinds of politics. And of course, Fox News is their most prominent mouthpiece. And it's the bullied who, you know, these kids who go in this prep-to-pro pipeline who accept the logic that the coach's authority is all-knowing and that their own uh, position in that relationship is of the the abused, basically. And so they accept the conditions of their abuse. And in one of the players, I thought this was so sad, like in attempting to defend the coach, he said, like, look, it's not like he's the only person who ever talks to us like this or treats us this way. And... And he was saying it to really defend him, not to expose it, but to defend it. Now, are there coaches who are good people who are trying to do the right thing and change the lives of kids? Of course there are. Absolutely. Uh, are, but you know what? Coaches who are like that, they, they, they get found randomly by kids. Like if you're a kid in this prep-to-pro, ruthless, privatized, professionalized youth sports, so-called amateur industry in the United States, 
at best, you'll be lucky and get a benevolent dictator. And at worst, you'll get someone uh, like Mike Rice because it, it has this kind of behavior has become normalized. Yeah, and I mean the and and the fact that it happened also on Rutgers when in 2010, you know, the suicide of Tyler uh, Clementi, um, the student whose roommate had video streamed a sexual encounter between him and and another man. I mean, you would think that there would have been a lot more sensitivity, you know, on that campus in in particular to this sort of thing. But um, Dave, I know you write about um, sport and uh, and about these kinds of, of scandals and other aspects of sport. And I also wanted to just expand it a bit um, to some of the other troubles um, in sports, because you see what happened at Penn State, you see what happened at, at Rutgers. And that's not to say a lot of good things happen in, don't happen in sports, because they do. But also looking across the pond, uh, some of the uh, racist attacks against uh, players, and that has you know made some headlines. And Oh, even with measures that have been put in place, they don't seem to be able to stop it, Dave Zirin. Um, well, no, I mean, I mean, it's a, a big difference between uh, politics in Europe and politics in the United States. Is I do think that there's certainly racism expressed in both, but in the United States, it's often very much expressed in code. Uh, well, except here in D.C., where there's a team called the Washington Redskins. But other than that, it's expressed in code. Uh, while in Europe it's far more explicit. And part of that is because sports itself is a far more political exercise in Europe. So you have you know, racist soccer clubs. You also have anti-racist soccer clubs. You have uh, teams that if you are a fascist, you are sympathetic to. There are teams if you are an anti-fascist, you are sympathetic to. And I say that those play themselves out. Now, often... I think, you know, we live in this era now where, you know, this footage, of course, is global, where people take uh, videos with their cell phones and send them around. And so it's, it's not dissimilar to what we're talking about with Coach Mike Rice in that this kind of racism has become so normalized in European soccer that when someone like the player uh, Kevin Boateng, you mentioned before, just picks up his ball and walks off uh, the field, I mean, it's almost like this electric shock to the entire system. Like, oh, okay, this isn't normalized. This isn't something that we should have to accept. This is something we could stand up against. And that's why these acts of, of resistance really are so important, because we unfortunately do live in an era of the normalization of homophobia, violence against women, sexism, racism, and but we also live in an era where there's at least some recognition that these are not things to celebrate. So you need people to stand up to them so the so it can create that kind of shock and also encourage other people who might not be as brave to stand up as well. Yeah, and I, I wonder what could be done to, to kind of keep this stuff, you know, high on the agenda because this past Friday, for example, uh, you talked about the player that walked off the field, but the FIFA president, um, Sepp Blatter, on Friday, he eased his hardline stance on combating racial abuse and violence in the stadium. So he seemed to be, you know, backing off a bit, um, you know, when the Botang incident first happened. And 
you know, one worries then, given what happened at, at Rutgers, also what happened at Penn State, that, well, people figure, well, this stuff is going to blow over and then we can just go back to business as usual. Are, are there any measures, uh, Dave Zirin, that you could uh, think of at least on, on this uh, side of the pond here in the United States that could help to break through um, some of this code of, of silence and, and, subsu- and abuse that happens as a result? Dave well, Zirin. First and foremost, on the opposite side of the pond, it's obvious what needs to be done. You need to have strict uh, rules and guidelines around racist behavior of fans. And Seth Blatter is a reptile. And so he's relaxing these rules uh, because he doesn't like having these periodic scandals. So how do you deal with these racist scandals? Well, there are two ways. You can either uh, crack down very hard and address it openly, which is what I think you and I would like to see, or you can normalize it even further by saying it's not a big deal and creating more pressure on players and anti-racist fans not to speak up. So, I mean, the, the obvious anti-racist fans in Europe have a lot of work ahead of them. On this side of the pond, I think what you have to do is have an NCAA system, or I should say a college sports system, I should say, that abolishes the NCAA, that recognizes uh, these young people as campus workers, which is what they are, and have a more explicit political economy. I mean, the reason why LeBron James said he'd never had a coach talk to him the way he saw at Rutgers isn't just because LeBron James is a superstar. It's because LeBron James never played in college. So Mm. he went directly to being a professional and having to be dealt with as somebody who made made a living, who had his own union association, and who had a, you know, a means of power, of collective power. Right. That these young people in college just don't have. They are powerless players in this. They have no power. They can't transfer schools without sitting out a year, and then they get branded as being a malcontent. Their coaches can leave whatever, whenever they want or make their lives hell. Right. It's really awful. So yeah. You have to have a just political economy if you're going to have change. All righty. Uh, we are out of time today. Show produced by Margaret Prescott. I'd love to thank the Sojourner Truth team, our engineer, Teddy Robinson, also Azim Khan, our researcher, assistant producer, Kevin Walker. If you'd like a copy of today's show, please contact the Pacifica Radio Archives. Remember to friend and like us on Facebook. Look for Sojourner Truth with Margaret Prescott. Sojourner Truth will be back on the air tomorrow morning. Thank you so much for listening. Thank you.